This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Derek Armstrong and Word of Grace Community Church. For more information, please visit wogcc.com. Any further into the book of Romans, which we're going to start off at the third chapter. It only took us five weeks to get there. So we're going to go start off in the third chapter. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for what you've done in our hearts, in our lives, what you're doing in our church family. Thank you so much for family. Thank you so much for loving us right where we're at. Thank you for welcoming us as your sons and daughters. Thank you for your word that reveals to us your plan, that reveals to us your will, that reveals to us your son, Jesus Christ. Help us today to understand your word so we can correctly apply it in our lives and so we can move forward, God, hand in hand with you, walking in the desires that you have for us, Lord, bringing you glory. Thank you, Jesus, for changing our hearts, for changing our minds, for changing our values, for pointing us to the cross. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You're taking notes this morning. You can write down this title, The Responsibility of the Christian Family. We're going to start that off in Romans chapter 3. And we also have our version back online for those of you that have been using the, uh, the, the app there for um, the, uh, the Bible app. You can do that now. It's been down for two weeks and um, they just got that thing running. So we're happy to have that back again so you can utilize that as well. So Romans chapter 3, before we read the first verse, let's just look at what Paul's been doing. He's been talking to the church in Rome And this is a church that's made up of two different kind of cultures primarily. Two cultures that it's made up of are Gentile people who are pagan people that did not grow up knowing about the things of God. They worshiped false idols. They had false gods and they worshiped uh, in, in a lot of perverted ways. They were completely lost, disconnected from God in every single way. Um, And and then there was another group of people that makes up the church in Rome that's called the Jewish people. And these Jewish people grew up understanding all the things about God. God gave them, uh, made covenant with their nation, made a covenant with uh, the father of that nation, Abraham. And through that lineage was brought the oracles of God, brought the Ten Commandments, brought the law of God, brought the prophets that came to prophesy about the coming Messiah. All this stuff came out of the Jewish nation. So these people felt very honored to be a part of that family, a part of that lineage, a part of that heritage. But now, since Christ has come, he has made all things new. And now it's not just about a Jew or a Gentile. Now both a Jew and a Gentile can be made right in the eyes of God. And so you've got a church that's made up of these two different mindsets, these two different cultures, both Jewish mentality and a Gentile mentality. And Paul addressed both. He was talking to those who did not uh, have that benefit of being raised in that type of environment and to those who did have that benefit. And I think that it really mirrors today the culture that we have in church, the culture we have in what we call Christianity. Because there's groups of people that are in church, that were raised in church, that were immersed in it, that have godly heritage. That, and then there's those people who came to Christ later on in life. And it's the very same things that Paul was dealing with with the church in Rome is the same thing that we're dealing with in church culture today. And so with that in mind, we're going to go and, and, and read uh, Romans chapter 3. He said in Romans chapter 3 and verse 1, What advantage then has the Jew 
Or what is the profit of circumcision? Now understand, part of God's covenant, part of God's seal or promise or sign that they were a part of this nation, that they were God's people, was circumcision. And they would often refer to those that were outside of uh, the, the family or, 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 this, or, or this lineage, this heritage of God as uncircumcised. They're uncircumcised Gentiles. You remember when David fought Goliath, he called him what? An uncircumcised Philistine. It was saying he's not a part of what, it, what God is doing. He's not a part of this heritage, this lineage, this family of God. Now, because of Christ, Paul just made the argument in Romans chapter 2, well, you Jews, you have the law and you have circumcision, but what good is the law to you Jews who've carried the law, who God gave the law to? What good is the law to you if you don't follow it? He said, what about a Gentile who's not circumcised that follows the law? What about that guy? Would you say that you're better than he because you are circumcised and you have the law, but you don't follow it? But the Gentile who's not circumcised, he does follow the law. He said, because of this, you guys think that you can be justified in the eyes of God by whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. He said, you think you can be justified in the eyes of God by whether you adhere to the law or you don't adhere to the law, or because you're a special group of people, or because you have your heritage that you can trace all the way back to Abraham, and you think that that makes you significant, you think that makes you special. He said, but listen, it's not those things that make you right in the eyes of God. Because here's the thing, Paul takes Jew and Gentile, and puts them all in the same boat. And he said, listen guys, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When he says all, he means Jew. He means Gentile. He means all, right? We've done a great in-depth study on the word all in the Greek. And the interpretation, do you remember it? It's all, right? That's what the correct interpretation of all in the Greek is. It's the word all. That doesn't mean just some people, no, all. So that means both Jew, the person that was good, the person that, that was raised in this godly heritage that was brought up in this way to, to live right and to understand God's heart and God's holiness and, and God's standards, and that that person is not justified because of the law, because they couldn't keep it no matter how hard they tried. But then the Gentile also, who didn't even have the law, he said, that person is not justified either by their works or they don't have excuse because they didn't have the law. Paul clearly makes that argument. He said, so now it's not Jew or Gentile because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so Paul's saying, what's the profit of circumcision? Is there benefit to having that godly heritage? Is there benefit to having been immersed in this culture that would try to teach us about the law, teach us about the good things of God, teach us about standards, and teach us about God's holiness? Is there benefit to those things? Because is there any benefit to the fact that I'm tied to Abraham and I'm in his lineage? Is there any benefit to that? Because it would sound like that Paul was saying, since everybody has sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we just might as well just toss all of those other things out because it just, just must not matter anymore. But Paul said this, verse 2, what's the prophet of circumcision? He says, much in every way. He said, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. He said, listen, this stuff is still significant. It's still important that you guys carried the law. It's still important that you guys were raised in this type of environment. 
It's still important that you guys are, are, are following that lineage of Abraham. The difference maker is, the difference maker is, where do you place your hope for right standing in the eyes of God? Because, see, the Jews had, an, had a problem. And I think it's a problem that I had in much of my walk as a Christian. I think it's a problem that a lot of people who are raised up in Christian homes can tend to have if we're not careful. That's why it's important that Christian families understand how to raise their children up to put their hope and their faith and their trust in Christ. Because the problem is, is that we begin to put our hope and our trust and our faith in what we've been exposed to, in the type of environment that we've been raised in, in the things we've done or the things we haven't done. And we begin to feel somewhat superior to people who maybe haven't experienced what we have or who have done things that we have shunned away from. And it brings about the sense of pride and arrogance. And that's very much what the Jewish people were dealing with. Because they were saying, how could this uncircumcised Gentile be viewed by God the same as me? I, I've, I carry the law. I'm circumcised. These people, they don't even have any of that stuff. What benefit is, 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 do they have with God? Surely I'm more special in the eyes of God. And he looks at me more favorably than he does them. And Paul said, no, you see, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So now it's not about Jew. It's not about Gentile. It's about Jesus. And it's about you recognizing your sinfulness. But then there's still benefit to those things as well. You see... The problem is, is that we put our security and our hope in the wrong things. And the Jews needed to recognize that security doesn't come through lineage. And I think that many Christian families take the same route as the Jews. I know I did anyways. So maybe I'm just speaking from personal experience here this morning. They believe that because of the environment they were raised in, because of what they experienced, that the message of the cross is somehow infused into their heart. Paul said, listen, there's still merit to being a part of that. That's great to be a part of that. He's not saying don't do those things. He's just saying those things don't give you hope for salvation. Those things don't make you right with God just because you were immersed in that type of environment. Just because when your alarm clock goes off and your feet hit the floor, you go, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Let me put on my cross earrings and my cross necklace and my Christian t-shirt. Let me go drink my Christian coffee out of my Christian coffee mug and turn on my Christian radio and get in my car and drive in my Christian car with my Christian tires. I even got crosses for the rims. And they're floaters, so they never go upside down. And we think that if we just immerse ourselves in Christian culture, that that somehow infuses into our hearts Christ. We think that that somehow infuses into our heart right standing with God. And oh, God must like me now because I am completely saturated with Christianity. I even speak in the King James English when I talk to people. Helloeth, howeth, areth, thoueth, doingeth, todayeth. And we think that that makes us spiritual. We think that that means because we are saturated and immersed in this type of culture that we are Christian. We think that because we have the freedom to do those things that we are Christian. We think that we're followers of Christ just because we're saturated with that type of environment. That's the exact same thing that Paul was addressing with the Jews. 
You guys think you're right with God because you're circumcised. You guys think you're right with God because you carried the law. Listen, those things are important and there is value and there is merit to those things. But those things do not give you hope of your salvation. Those things don't make you righteous or right in the eyes of God. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us. It doesn't matter if you've done, you know, maybe some of the, you know, we, we like to classify sins. I've, I've only done, you know, B-class sins. I haven't done those A-class sins. You know, I know some people that have. It's just some bad stuff. And we compare ourselves to other people as if somehow there's this rank and file of good sin, bad sin, and these people have really sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No, he said all. Everybody. And he goes through that list in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. And he begins to explain to everyone about how we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. How we've worshipped the creation rather than the creator. And he begins to talk about all these things. He begins to say they're slanderous, they're they're, they're murders, they're vile, they're people who have uh, given over to evil passions. They're disobedient to their parents. They're proud. They're boasting. They have all fallen short of the glory of God. And then in chapter 2, Paul addresses the church in Rome by saying, and you guys who are judging people for doing this stuff, you do the same thing. He said, you're doing the same stuff. You're all rejecting God and you're missing the point because if you're putting trust and hope in your goodness, in your own brand of righteousness, in your good works, in your good deeds, then you're not understanding the gospel. You're putting your hope for your security in right standing with God based on how well you do, based on how immersed you are in that type of culture. And Paul said, listen, you you can't do that. He He said, that's not where our hope comes from. He tells him in Romans 1 and 17, he said, the just shall live by faith. Amen? Faith in what? Faith in the fact that while we were yet sinners, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, faith that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That when he was hanging on the cross, that should have been you. That should have been me. Because we have all sinned and we all deserved to be on that tree. Because that was the punishment that was required to satisfy the wrath of a holy God against humanity. Was for us to be up there. But instead of us being up there, He sent His Son in our place. So we didn't have to. And now it's God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. As the sacrifice, as the propitiation as the satisfaction of God's wrath against humanity for you and for me. The Bible says it pleased the Father to crush the Son. It pleased Him to do that. Why? Because God's holiness cannot be violated by sinful people. So for Him to be holy, He has to give out justice that's due. And He did through His Son. His Son who was a perfect spotless lamb who didn't sin, who was perfect in every way, when you and I couldn't be perfect, when we couldn't measure up to the standard, Jesus did. And faith and hope and justification in the eyes of God, right standing, righteousness in the eyes of God comes through faith in Christ alone. You see, Paul said, listen, you Jews, you Gentiles, you're both justified or made righteous in the eyes of God through the sacrifice of Christ. But that means that doesn't mean that being part of 
that type of environment or that family or that lineage is not significant or, 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 or it's not beneficial. He said, it's just not the hope of your salvation. You see, he said, you guys know the truth because of the way you were raised. Very much the stark contrast of the person who wasn't raised as a Jewish person or someone who in our day and time wasn't raised in a Christian type home. Maybe they came to Jesus later in life. And Paul's saying, listen, it doesn't matter how you were raised. What matters is, listen, Christ is your answer. But that doesn't negate all of those other things. It doesn't mean that we should just go, okay, well, I guess we should just, we should just not worry about that. Maybe we should just come to Christ on our deathbed. It sounds good to me. We'll live however we want to do, do whatever we want to do. And because it doesn't matter, well, let's just do what we want to do. No, you see, you were created for the glory of God. You and I were created for His glory. And when He comes and He changes our heart, we recognize our need for Him. Then these good works, these things that He desires for us that are going to bring Him glory are going to come out of our heart as a response. Romans chapter 3 and verse 3, Paul's arguing with this, you know, kind of imaginary person, if you will, after he's already said, what's the profit of circumcision? Should we just quit it? He said, in every way we should keep doing it. He, 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 said, he says, I'm not saying it's bad to do that. He said, you guys, are, you were committed to the oracles of God. And then he comes back with this argument. Well, what if some didn't believe? Will, that, will their belief make the faithfulness of God without effect? He said, so in other words, what if they were raised in this environment as a Jew and they learned all these things and then they still don't believe? Does that mean that God's not faithful? Does that mean that His faithfulness has no effect at all? He said, no, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and let every man be a liar because as it is written, you may be justified in your words and, you, and, and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what are we going to say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? It, shouldn't we just say, let's do evil so good can come? Why don't we just do that? Paul said some are slanderously reporting and affirming that this is what we're saying. He said their condemnation is just. He said, I understand why they would think that. So what then? Verse 9, what then? Are we better than those people? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that all are under sin. You see, Paul's imaginary opponent comes back with, what if they believe? Or, or what, what if they didn't believe? Does that make God a liar? And he's saying, no, 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 listen. God is going to judge both the person who had the advantage or the privilege, just as he will the person that did not. But it doesn't change God's faithfulness, nor does it make the person who had the privilege of a godly heritage less responsible for their faith. A lot of times we get this feeling or this sense that we're not as responsible for being justified through faith by putting our faith and our trust and our hope in Christ. And we begin to depend on the environment. We begin to be like the Jews where we begin to depend on those things as a means to our security, as a means to our salvation, as a means to right standing with God. And we think that that's just good enough. And it's not. We still have to make a decision. We still have to recognize for ourselves. I grew up in the church. Uh, this is very this message is dear to my heart and I can speak from first-hand experience. If the windows were being washed, we had a front row seat. If the linoleum was peeling in the church kitchen, we watched it. It didn't matter what was going on if the bug man came to spray the church. Hey, let's go see it. 
Something's happening at church. I grew up always being at church. And I was homeschooled from seventh grade until graduation. And so because of that, I got to go to the church even more because they had morning prayer meetings, morning Bible studies. And mom would take my sister and I. I was always at church. I did some things in life that I thought were pretty cool, that were pretty significant. When I was 15 years old, I preached my first sermon. I preached in front of almost 300 people that day, and I felt like I was somebody, buddy. Pin a rose on my nose. And most people, when they preach their first sermon, a lot of people joke around. They said, oh, it's only 10, 15 minutes. Mine was 45. You better believe I've had the gift of gab since my first sermon. <laughs> my first sermon, and I felt awesome because of that. I felt like I had done something special. You know that I was a youth pastor at 18 years old, two weeks out of high school. Who hires somebody two weeks out of high school? And it paid me money, too. God bless them. Bless them. I didn't know what I was doing. But I used to feel very proud and would be very prideful in those things and feel like because I had accomplished those things and because I had done those things, man, God really likes me and God really thinks I'm special. And, he, and I was assuming that those things meant I was right with God. I was assuming that those things meant that I was secure. And I didn't understand my need for Christ. I didn't understand the fullness of the goodness and the richness and the mercy and exactly what happened on the cross. I didn't understand those things, at least not fully. I knew Jesus died for me, but then it was like, okay, Jesus died for me, what now? What next? Now let's move on. We're past the Jesus died for me part. Now let's go talk about something else. And I didn't understand my real need for Christ because I thought I was good and of myself. I was much like those arrogant Jews Paul was addressing. I was much like those people. You know, and I think that because I was raised up in that type of environment and I had that type of an attitude and, and a mentality, you know, that, that I, I didn't, you know, I thought of myself generally as a good person. And I thought the goal of Christianity was to, for God to help good people to become better people. I thought that was the goal. And so that's what I taught. That's what I lived. That's what I believed is that the goal of Christianity was for good people to become better people because I thought of myself as good. And I thought of other people as bad or just not quite as good as me. And I think a lot of times we can get that type of arrogance, that type of pride, the same pride that the Jews had. It got in my heart. It was a part of my life. And I thought that those things made me significant in the eyes of God, much like the Jews said, we're circumcised. We carry the law. We can trace our lineage all the way back to Abraham. Look at how we were raised. Look at what we were brought up in. Look at how significant we are. And Paul said, listen, there's neither Jew nor Greek. He said, it's not about those things anymore. There's still benefit to those things. He said, but it's not about those things for your hope, for your security, for being right in the eyes of God. And I think there's primarily three different views that Christian families hold concerning being right with God. That right standing, that righteousness. And we're going to talk about those, the three views of righteousness. And the first one I've talked a little bit about is called assumed righteousness. We're assuming that we're right in the eyes of God. Here the person assumes they have right standing with God. If they're raised in a Christian home, assumption can come from merely that peace alone. If we don't teach our families about their need for Christ, 
They can assume because they hear about Jesus, because we go to church, because we take communion, because we sing worship songs, we assume we're right with God. And that is a misconception that is leading people down a wrong path. We're assuming because of the environment that we're saturated in. We're assuming because we're American that we're Christian. Or we're assuming because we're a certain political affiliation that we're Christian. And that's not how it works. Those, the two don't equal. It's not because I'm this or I'm that. It's my faith is in Jesus or it's not. Amen? Amen. I can't assume that I am right with God just because of my good deeds or because of my church attendance or because I've been soaked and saturated and immersed in this type of culture. I'm just assuming. People say stuff like this. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm I grew up, you know, I went to Catholic school as a kid. That's what people say. That's not what I asked you. I didn't ask you where you went to school. I said, are you a Christian? Do you follow Christ actively in your life? Because the Bible says the just shall live by faith. Amen? Amen. Live. Not just one time. Are, are you a Christian? Are you a Christ follower? Yeah, I raised my hand in church once. That's not what I asked you. Are you a follower of Jesus yeah, I mean, I, I, I went to Christian school. I put my kids in Christian school. We're Christians. No. I own all of Michael W. Smith's albums. What does that even mean? <laughs> that doesn't equate to Christian. Do you put your hope and your faith and your trust in Christ alone? Because Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. He didn't say, you get to come to the Father because you put your kids in Christian school. He didn't say that you get to come to the Father because you have all of the greatest hits of all the best Christian music or because you listen to Bill Gaither. I don't know. But are those things wrong? No, absolutely not. That's what Paul was saying. Are those things that you're doing in teaching the law and teaching morality, teaching standards, are those things wrong? Is, is, is it wrong to be excited and glad that you're part of a godly heritage coming from the seed of Abraham? Absolutely not. Celebrate those things. Cherish those things. Be a part of those things. Grow up in those things. Just don't put your faith and your hope in those things for salvation. That's what Paul was trying to get across to the church in Rome. And that's what God wants us to understand today. We can't assume we're righteous because this is where we think of ourselves as good and others either as bad or just maybe they're not bad, but they're not quite as good as me. The second righteousness is much like assumed righteousness. It's very similar. We're going to call it infused righteousness. And here the person trusts and believes that their right standing with God is primarily connected to religious rites of passage that they have done. And because of those things, they believe that those works have infused their heart with righteousness and their right, and right standing with God because of things that they've done. This view is held by those who practice such things like infant baptisms or penance or communion as a means for salvation. And if you were raised up in this type of environment, you think much like the assumed righteous crowd, you think that I need to keep passing these things along in order to uh, confirm and assume and, and infuse that these people are right with God. I want to make sure that they're sealed, that, they're, that they belong to God, and that they're in right standing with God, so we're going to do these things to make them right with God. And folks, the Bible says clearly in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, it's by faith that you are saved. 
He said, it's grace, it's this gift that he's given. He said, it's not from works, because if it was about works, then you could boast in it. By grace you've been saved through faith, and that's not even a gift from yourself. Lest any man should boast. You can't boast about that. It's not a work that you've done. No, salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ, not something that's infused. I remember when I was 12 years old, I spent some time with my uncle in New Orleans, and we went downtown New Orleans. And my uncle was a very new Christian, very, very, very infant in his beliefs and in his walk with the Lord. And his boss, who was a real nasty, just rotten guy, was on his deathbed. And my uncle wanted his boss to know Christ. And his boss kept rejecting Christ. And my uncle kept with his fervency and his passion uh, as a new believer trying to lead his boss to Christ. And he just kept rejecting it. So my uncle didn't know what else to do. So he and I went to that big, beautiful Catholic church that's in the Jackson Square down there in New Orleans. And we walked in there together. He said, come with me, Derek. Let's go in here. We're going to go say a prayer for my boss. And I, I said, okay. And we go, and he lights a couple of candles, and I was completely confused about all that because I didn't grow up Catholic. I didn't know what that was even all about. And then he goes in this little store, and there's a priest there, and the priest is selling these cloths, and my uncle buys a cloth because he explains the situation, and he sells him this little cloth, and he said, these have been anointed with, with anointing oil and, and, and blessed with holy water and have been prayed over, and if you take this piece of cloth and you pin it, to this guy on his deathbed, if he doesn't confess Christ, then, then God's going to see this cloth and he's going to allow him into his heaven. And my uncle bought it, paid, paid the guy 20 bucks for a piece of cloth, and I guess the guy dies and instead of going to hell and getting the judgment and the wrath of God that he deserves for rejecting Christ, God's going to go, oh, he's got the cloth thing. So salvation only costs 20 bucks. And I'm going, Seriously? Because he believed that righteousness could somehow be infused, that right standing with God could somehow be infused with $20. And I started thinking, this is not how we're made right with God. This is not how relationship is reconciled with God. So here's a different view of righteousness. And people think that I have to keep doing these things. I have to go to a certain kind of church and I have to go here. If I go somewhere else, it doesn't count. And I have to think that I have to do it this way and I have, to, I have to do everything this way because God will only accept me if I do it this way. This is how he infuses his righteousness to me is by these things that I do. And we miss grace and we miss faith and we grow up with a misunderstanding of righteousness. And then there's the third kind of righteousness. There's imputed righteousness. Here the person believes that right standing with God is a gift of grace from a holy God who has the ultimate goal of his glory in mind. He invites those who have rebelled against his holy nature to find forgiveness and justification in his sight through faith in the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ on where Jesus himself took the penalty for sin that was rightfully deserved by every one of us. But he took it in your stead. And faith in that act, faith, faith in that work puts me in right standing with God because now it's no longer I that lives, but it's Christ that lives within me. Amen? Amen. It's now that I have been justified by my faith in the finished work of the cross and I rest and hope and cling to that cross because it's only by the cross that I'm made right with God. And I go, that's how I'm righteous. It's not my own brand of righteousness it's that He's clothed me with His righteousness. It's that Jesus Christ on the inside of me has come, and therefore if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
Old things have passed away, and behold, all things are become new. It's something that I have received as a gift, not by something I'm trying to earn, not something I'm trying to deserve. But here's the thing. Emphasis in the Christian's life has often been much like that Jewish culture that Paul was dealing with in Romans, where we place emphasis on morality instead of the cross. And what we do when we do it, it sounds good to place emphasis on morality, but listen, when we place emphasis on morality instead of the cross, we're using the goodness of man as the goal instead of the glory of God. And if we're not careful, we're raising up a generation that is looking at salvation and justification through the lenses of assumed or infused righteousness. They have a distorted view of righteousness because God has been painted. If we're not careful as Christian families, we are painting God as someone who just wants them to behave and act well and be nice and fair and kind to everyone and loving and forgiving. And that's the goal is for you to act like that. And then when the person tries to go after that type of a life and they fail, they feel like they've failed God and they feel like God is angry with them and they feel like they can never please God. And this is often projected in family relationships where children grow up thinking they cannot please their mom, they cannot please their dad, they're never good enough no matter how hard they try, and they take the same view to God. And why would they want to trust Him? Why do you think that people who grow up in Christian homes sometimes will rebel against those things instead of learning about the goodness of God, instead of learning about repentance, instead of learning about Jesus Christ, they think that their salvation and their acceptance by God is completely contingent upon their behavior. And so when their behavior is unacceptable, they think they're unacceptable. Same thing that people do with God. They think that when our behavior is unacceptable, they think God must hate me, God must not love me, or God's too hard to please, His standards are too high, I can't make Him happy with my life. And you know what? You're exactly right. You can't meet God's standards. You can't meet them. They're too high. His holiness is not obtainable by a human. But... There was one who came as a representative of mankind who did meet God's standards. Amen? Amen. Jesus Christ met God's standards in every single way. He not only followed the law, but fulfilled it. He was perfect in every single way and fulfilled that law for you and for me. Because we couldn't go up to that center. Now, 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 Now listen, remember where Paul said, now, does that mean we throw out all those things? He said, no. Do we throw out morality? No. Do we throw out teaching our children good morals and teaching them boundaries and ethics and all those things? No, don't you dare throw those things out. You need those things, but those things aren't the gospel. And those things aren't the goal of the Christian. The goal of the Christian is to rest in the finished work of the cross and be reconciled with God. Good things flow out of that type of a heart and that type of a life. You see, if we're not careful, we're raising up that kind of generation. And here's the responsibility. This is the family's responsibility. The responsibility of the Christian family is to continue a heritage of justification through faith in Jesus Christ. That's our responsibility. Families that follow Christ have a responsibility not only to carry out the morality piece of Christianity, because sometimes we can get stuck on that. 
And that's all we want to talk about is morals and ethics because we think that's all Christianity is and we miss the boat if that's all we think it is. Is that a part of it? Is that a piece of it? Sure, absolutely. But those things are a fruit of a heart that has been radically changed and transformed by the power of God. I stayed up at this church last night till almost 11 o'clock talking to a friend of mine about this very thing. We got in a conversation where we were just, it was like preaching to the choir. Both of us were just talking. And we were just sitting there talking about the same thing, justification through faith. And, and, I, and I had a little moment of something that, that popped up in Ephesians where we see Paul saying, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We go, okay. That's all Paul said. Paul didn't say, let me make a little side note. Here's how you do all those things. But that's what we do a lot of times. We'll go, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we'll go, okay, how do we do that? Let's figure that out. Give me a list so I'll know when I'm doing it. Show me how to do that. How do I love my wife as Christ loved the church? And we go, okay, here's how to do it. And and, and I go, okay, I'm doing that one, doing that one. Man, I'm not doing that one. I'm not doing real good at that. And we're either going to do one of two things with that list. If we look at everything as a how-to, we're only engaging the mind and the behavior. And we're going at it the wrong way. And if we only engage the mind and the behavior, then when we try to figure everything out, it's only going to do one of two things. It's either going to make us prideful and arrogant because we can do all of those things or we are doing those things and we go, "Eh, I'm doing those things. I don't need this message. Or we're going to go, man, I'm a failure. God must hate me. But here's what Paul was saying when he said, husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. You see, you can't love your wife like Christ loved the church until you understand how Christ loved the church. Let that soak in for just a minute. You can't love your wife like Christ loved the church until you understand how Christ loved the church. Because see, Paul didn't say, and here's the addendum, and here's the laundry list of how to do that. No, he just said, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. They went, whoa, I get that. That's heavy. That's weighty because I understand the love of Christ for the church. That brings a whole new weight. Where does that engage you? Does that engage you in your mind? No, it punches you straight in the heart. It engages your heart because it goes, wow, I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I understand that because I have received this type of love that's been imputed to me, this thing that I've received, this grace, this mercy, this love, this forgiveness. That is a heavy love. And the more I grow in my understanding of Christ loving the church and giving himself for her, the more I'm going to grow in my heart for loving my wife like he loved the church. And not just me trying to go down a laundry list of things to accomplish so I can feel better about my failures or my things that I've done wrong or I'm trying to make up for all of the bad times. No, the only way that your behavior is truly going to change is if your heart changes. You can try to, you see what, what culture does is they, they, they try to fix behavior and they do it through trying to make people feel bad or just feel good or feel accepted with what they're doing or show them just a better way or give them some practical steps to how to make that happen. And if they can't do that, then it's time for you to go see somebody so you can talk to them about that to try to figure out why you're behaving this way. And then we want to work on behavior, 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 behavior. And then we just give up and go, hey, here, take a pill. I don't know what else to do because we just want the behavior fixed. It's not a behavior issue more times than not. It's a heart issue. 
The behavior is the fruit of the heart. That's why Jesus said, what's coming out of your mouth is what's in your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's why James said, Don't, you can't tame the tongue. That sucker's untamable. You can't tame it in your own strength. But you want to know how you can tame your tongue? By allowing your heart to be changed by the gospel. Out of the heart, out of the uh, abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's where that comes from. Now, okay, let's all have a class on how to say nice words to each other. Because when we say things to each other like that, it's almost demeaning. You say, don't speak bad things, speak good things. Oh, okay. I thought I was supposed to speak bad things. Seriously? We know that. So just telling someone, don't say bad things. Don't do bad things. Don't think bad thoughts. I know that. That's programmed. I'm hardwired that way. It's called a conscience. Paul said even the Gentiles understand that. They don't have the law. I'm about to fall off this stage. (laughs) He said it's not about that. You see, when we can't fix behavior... We just, we, we, we give up or we self-medicate because we feel like a failure. So we get addicted to something to make ourselves feel better. And we never deal with the heart. But Jesus went straight for the heart. That's why Paul said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Oh man, that changes everything. When I understand how Christ loved the church... When I understand the weight of my sin and how much He forgave. Because see, I get to see the wrath of God. I got to see the wrath of God that was meant for me. I got to see it in the form of how Jesus was, was whipped, how He was beaten, how He was hung. Whoa! The problem is, is that we feel like we're good because we think like the arrogant Jews. We feel like we're good and we're like, well, I'm not really that bad. No, we were bad enough to deserve what Jesus got on the cross. That's how bad we were. And when we realize that, it makes the cross all that much sweeter. Because we go, that is a beautiful cross. Because Christ took my place. It was like if you committed a murder and you were destined for the electric chair, and that's what you deserved. Because you took someone else's life. You did something vile. And you hurt people and hurt their families. And you needed the electric chair. That's what you deserved. People wanted to see you get it. Because that's what you earned. That's what you deserved. And right before you were going to sit in the chair and your life was going to be taken from you, Jesus taps you on the shoulder and says, I'll sit there and take the chair for you even though you deserve it and you go free that's the weight of the love of Christ husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church that puts a whole new weight on that you don't have to tell me how to do that because now you've engaged my heart the behavior is going to follow. What did Jesus say? Make the tree good and the fruit good, or the tree bad and the fruit bad, for a tree is going to be known by its fruits. A tree doesn't go, okay, got my roots planted? All right, if trees talk, we're going Wizard of Oz here for a minute. I got my root thing going on. I figured the leaf thing out. I'm pretty good at leaves, but every fall it just starts messing up. But I haven't got the fruit thing down. Okay. All right, and fruit. You don't see a tree freaking out about how do I do fruit. Can someone please teach a tree how to do fruit? 
this tree is not really good at the fruit thing. Can you teach him? He produces fruit what? Naturally. A tree produces fruit naturally when its roots are deep, when it's planted in good ground, when it's receiving the, the water and the sun and the different things that it needs. Fruit is a result. We just want the results, and so we try to just teach people how to do the results as if the goal were just fruit. No, the goal is the glory of God, and a life that truly understands the gospel is going to produce the fruit of the Spirit of God living on the inside of you. Why? Because now it's not a head thing. It's a heart thing. It's my heart's been engaged. It's my heart has been gripped. My heart has been gripped by, 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 by this thing. This is our responsibility as Christian families. So why the circumcision? Why the law? Why the sacrifice? See, when the people lose the why, they begin to worship the method. They begin to think the method is what's important. And so they bow down to the method and they forget the why behind it because they, they miss circumcision was something about calling, setting you guys apart, making you a part of this lineage that's going to bring forth the promised son, the Messiah, all the sacrifices and the law. Everything was supposed to show you Jesus. So that way when Jesus actually does come on the scene, you go, yep, there he is. But they missed him. The very people that were entrusted with all of these laws and all of these things from God to show the world Jesus, they missed Jesus when he came. And they actually crucified him because they didn't like the way he operated. But then Paul, one who was, who was persecuting the church of God, he was killing Christians before his conversion to Christianity. He got knocked off of his horse and he thought he was doing something good, thought he was doing good works. And he said, why do you persecute me? And he said, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus Christ, the one you've been persecuting. In that moment, it all became real to him. It broke him. Because he realized that all of his good works, all of the good things he thought he was doing, he was misunderstanding the law. He was misunderstanding the why behind everything he was doing. And they made it about themselves. Matt Chandler uh, uses this phrase. He's the author of the explicit gospel. He uses this phrase, moralistic therapeutic deism, which is what most people believe today in every religion of the world. You can teach this anywhere. It doesn't even have to be Christian. New Age teaches this. Christian science, which is neither Christian nor science. Discuss. It teaches this. Islam teaches this. Buddhism teaches this. Oprahism teaches this. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It's moralistic because it teaches good people go to heaven. You go to heaven because you're good. God likes you because you're good. So the goal is for you to try to be good so God will like you. So you'll go to heaven. Or you've done bad in your life. You recognize that. But let's try to offset that by doing more good than bad. Let's go work in homeless shelters. Let's go be nice to our neighbors and mow their grass. Let's go buy someone a hamburger that is hungry. Let's go do all these things. And if we do enough of that, it's going to outweigh the bad, and then God's going to accept us into his heaven because good people go to heaven, and I consider myself a good person. That's the moralistic side of it. It's therapeutic because he wants me to be happy. That's what my deity or my God wants. That, that's his ultimate goal. That's why he created me was for me to be happy you know, and for me to feel good. And, and it's very narcissistic. It's, it's a religion that's centered on uh, pragmatism. 
It's a technique that we invoke to feel better about what we've done. It's something we go, okay, I, I know I've done this, but you know, really I'm a good person. I'm just going to try to be a, a, a better person. And the goal is a better version of me, me 2.0. And, and so I'm, I'm just going to make myself feel better and do the things that feel good because I'm looking at my relationship with God or Christianity as this moralistic, therapeutic deism. And it's deistic because the bad news is too bad and we don't want to hear the bad news. We don't want to hear about us being sinners, haters of God, people that deserve death. We don't want to hear that's too bad. And so we don't want to listen to that. And the good news is too good. So we just set up rules that make sense to us. We just set our own, our own rules. And we just go, okay, I'm going to believe what I believe. You believe what you believe. This is the way I interpret it. This is the way I look at it. This is the way I think that it's going to be. Instead of reading the Bible and seeing that from front to back, it's just a full revelation of who Jesus is. Instead of going, wow, this whole thing's about Christ from beginning to end. It's all about God reconciling man unto himself, and the whole Bible is pointing to Jesus. Instead of me seeing that, I'm going to go, well, let's make it about what I want it to be about, and I want it to be moralistic, therapeutic, and I'm going to set the rules, and I'm going to be my own God, and I'm going to make my own version of God. We want it to make sense to us and apply to us, and we want it to be something that everyone can like because no one wants to talk about the bad news because that's too bad. Nobody wants to talk about the good news because that's just too good. We, I mean, that's too good. It's not that free. It's not that simple. We've we, we got to do something, right? I mean, we've got to work harder. We've got to be better. We've got we to gotta get to a certain level, and then we'll get it, right? The, the, the good news is too good. The bad news is too bad. And, that's, and people want something that, 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 that makes sense to them. And so we create our, our own version of Christianity, and it's not Christianity at all. It's just moralistic, therapeutic deism. And the thing is, folks, is that Jesus is not the mascot of our lives that's just cheering us on to be better versions of ourselves. Jesus is not just our, our homeboy, our mascot, giving us the thumbs up and the winky eye. That's not who Jesus is. Jesus is the Savior of our souls. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by Him. And when I realize my emptiness, my fallen uh, nature, when I realize my rejection of God, when I realize my pride, and those things break me, and I go, oh my gosh, I have been like these arrogant Jewish people who were putting my hope and my faith and my trust in my own goodness. It makes me reach out to God, and what do I do? I repent, and I say, Jesus, I repent for putting my faith and my trust in my good works and in my good deeds. Jesus, I realize that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and I'm a part of that all, and I need you. It doesn't matter if I grew up in a Christian family or if I just found out about you today. I need you, Jesus, and I need to trust in your cross, and you give me the free gift of grace instead of punishing me instead of putting me down and belittling me and devaluing me you pick me up out of the filthy yuck and muck and junk and mire and all this crud that we have just covered ourselves in. he picks us up and says i want you just like you are i welcome you just as you are put the ring on his finger put the robe on his back my son who was dead is now alive he was lost now he's found i want to welcome him into my family he's now a part of my family because he trusts in what i did for him and he has received my love and my grace and my goodness and he is in right standing with me not because of what he's done but because of what i did for him and he's trusting in that to be good enough to make him right with me 
And when you have that kind of a heart, when you have that kind of a heart transformation, then Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your reasonable act of service. You go, yes, sir. I get it. When he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, you go, I get it, because he's engaged your heart. Wow, the weight that that brings, the freedom that that brings, because it takes the weight of us trying to figure all of this out, takes it off of us, takes the burden off of us, and we take upon the yoke of Christ, because he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we go, there's freedom in Christ. He who the Son has set free is free indeed. His agenda is reconciliation and His method is Jesus. God's agenda is just not a moralistic, holistic society. That's not His agenda. His agenda is His glory. And He gets glory from those things when they come from a heart that trusts in Christ, not a heart that trusts in themselves as the answer. Amen, somebody. You see, Jesus is the revelation of God's promise. Jesus is the revelation of God's perfection, of God's heart, of His holiness, of God's wrath, and of God's mercy for us. We're made right in the eyes of God by faith in Jesus. We don't throw away the standards, and we don't throw away the morals, and we don't throw away the ethics. By no means, far be it from us that we would do that. That would be foolish for us to just do. That's what Paul said. He said it, it would be the thing that Paul was being accused of teaching is that it doesn't matter what we do. We'll just, we'll just all, you know, just live however we want to live and, 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 and we'll do evil so that good can come. You know, let's just do that. That's what Paul is being accused of saying. And, and, and an imbalanced approach of grace in the gospel would also be saying that. But a balanced approach would be saying, no, 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 we don't throw out ethics. We don't throw out morals. We don't throw out teaching people practicality and how to grow in their lives and things like that, but we don't try to do that to change their behavior. We try to do that to teach them and show them the heart of God because God has their hearts. And when God has your heart and you hear husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, you go, I get it. I might need some help walking some of this stuff out. That's why he gives us one another, iron sharpening iron. But I get it. In my heart, I understand the weight of that. And the more I grow in understanding the love of Christ, the more I'm going to grow in loving my wife because I understand how Christ loved the church. You see, we don't throw out good works. We don't throw away standards. We simply understand that our hope rests in the goodness of God, not in our goodness. We understand that we've dramatically been changed, and those works and those standards reflect that change that's happened in our hearts. You see, it's the responsibility of Christian families to always point one another to Jesus, to the gospel. It's the great responsibility that you and I have to carry the truth of the gospel to the next generation. And how we do that is where is our emphasis for hope? Where do you emphasize hope? Is all that we're teaching, is all that we're modeling, is just do this, don't do that. If we do that, we're missing the whole point of the gospel. If our acceptance and our love is based on performance to our family, to our husbands, to our wives, we're not loving our spouses like Christ loved the church because we're loving them based off of their performance. 
It's if love. It's conditional love. Jesus had unconditional love that while we were yet sinners, that's heavy, man. That's heavy. That changes everything. That changes my perception. That changes my heart. That changes the way I want to treat people. That's why when you say, love your neighbor as yourself, you go, wow, I I understand that now in a deeper way. And it's not that I have to go down a list of, you know, make them cookies, mow their yard, you know. I can give you ideas, but go off checking off a list and feeling like, oh, I'm doing pretty good with that. No, no, no. Is it in your heart? Because people are looking for real. They're looking for genuine. They're looking for authentic. And for us to engage people with an authentic, real Jesus, we have to engage them at a heart level, not just at a head level. We have to engage them at a heart level. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Where do we emphasize hope? Is it in ourselves and in our deeds or is it in Jesus? Because faith comes when we hear the word and our faith is to be put on the finished work of the cross. Amen, church. That's where our hope is supposed to be put. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit wogcc.com.